Would you join me as we continue in uh, Thessalonians? We're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians today, chapter 1. I'll be uh, studying through 11 and 12, but we're going to read verses 5 through verses 12. It's on page 989 of the Pew Bible, if you didn't bring your own. So I'm going to start reading from verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all whom have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go before him again in prayer. Oh Lord, I pray that as we look into your word today, that you would take it by your spirit, Lord, and you would infuse it with your power, and that you, Lord, would use your words for your purposes to change our hearts and our minds and make us more like the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that if there is anything that comes out of my mouth that is not of you, would you take it and just remove it from people's minds. So, Lord, we ask... For your word, your pure word, to change us and make us into who you want us to be for the glory of your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so today's passage is an interesting passage. We see a lot of times that Paul records many of his prayers in Scripture, but this is not a prayer of Paul. No, it's more like a prayer report. It's, um, it's Paul telling the Thessalonians about his prayer habits for them. What he prays for them, how he prays for them, and ultimately why he prays for them. So as we look into what Paul tells them about this prayer in verses 11 and 12, we're going to see that he links it back to the previous passage that God talks about, uh, the judgment when Christ comes again. And that's verses 5 through 10, as we heard last week. The repayment of those that afflict God's people and also the relief that will come on those believers, on all of us, as we experience His coming again. Verses 7 and 8 is pretty strong and it underscores the point. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, Inflicting vengeance on those that do not know God. That will be a sight to behold 
brothers and sisters. It fills me with a mix of emotions, a mix of abject terror as well as comfort. Praise God. Comfort because on that day when he comes again, all the wrongs will be made right. Our vindication as sons and daughters of God will be here. Praise God. But oh, how crushing for those that are not his. Many of you, like me, have loved ones outside the fold. And we beg God to save them. Let us be persistent, like the persistent widow, right? And never give up praying for them. So as we study verses 11 and 12 here, we're going to see it's, it's sandwiched in between the previous passage that talks about the second coming. And then the passage afterwards, which talks about the, the man of lawlessness. So you see these, these two verses sandwiched within this whole theme of the second coming of Christ. And if you remember when you read through this, that the Thessalonians, they were, they were kind of shaken by this whole thing. They thought that the day of the Lord had come and gone, and they missed it. But no, Paul is going to comfort them through this. He's saying to them, no, you haven't missed it, but in light of all that is coming, both before and after these two verses, he says what? He says, I pray for you. What he prays for them, how he prays for them, and why he prays for them. So what does he pray for them? He doesn't pray that they would have a good life or good health or even that their persecutions would end. No, he prays for some very fundamental, core, foundational, specific truths, values, good things. He says in light of the fact that we're talking about the end times here, the culmination of all of history, I pray these valuable things for you. When he says we, who is he talking about? He's talking about Paul and Silas and Timothy. And he says we always pray for you. These men, they, they've lived lives of committed, consistent, deep prayers for the Thessalonian believers. Do you remember back in 1 Thessalonians 5, we talked about that in verse 17. It says, pray without ceasing. These men, these men are probably closer to that literal sense than I could ever hope to attain. John MacArthur says this about Paul's prayer here. He says, true prayer is learning to think God's thoughts after him. Learning to desire God's desires with him. Learning to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And the deeper your prayer life becomes and the more it lines up with God's will and God's longings and God's desires and God's loves and God's hates, the more you will understand those spiritual realities that you know are close to the heart of God. Paul says that we always pray for you, that our God, yours and mine, the God of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as well as the God of the Thessalonians, may make you worthy of his calling. What is Paul saying here? That God would make them so good that somehow they will earn salvation or become worthy of being his children? 
that somehow they will attain to a state of perfect righteousness and then they'll be called worthy? They'll be worthy to be called? Absolutely not. Paul would say, may it never be. Paul, of all people, the one who violently persecuted the church, who was called while on the way to seek out Christians for destruction on the road to Damascus. Do you remember that story? But the grace of God intervened at that moment. And he was called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, not after he was a changed man, but before. That's God's grace. He is saying that God called them, the Thessalonians. God saved them. God put a new heart of flesh in them to replace their hearts of stone. And now because of that, they desire to live lives that reflect the high calling of Ephesians 4.1, which says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Romans 8.30 says this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also what? Glorified. This calling that Paul is talking about is the effectual calling of salvation. It's the once and done act of God, of, of him making someone alive even after they've been spiritually dead. It's not the calling that we see in some other parts of Scripture. In Matthew 22, in the parable of the wedding feast, where the calling of the master is more like an invitation. No, it's not that. It's this call that cannot be resisted. The one that makes one born again. So already called, already justified, Paul is now asking God to make the Thessalonians worthy of this high calling that they have already received. He's praying with eternal values in mind. He's praying for those signs of God's grace in them to be ever more obvious, to be manifest that their lives would so become salt and light in a lost world, leaving a sweet testimony, a worthy testimony that draws people to the Father through the Son. Because as you know, we've studied 1 John 5.12. You remember that? It says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The famous theologian John Stott, he says this, Since then, he has been summoning us to live a life worthy of the calling with which we have been called. He has also been working in us in order to narrow the gap between what we were when, we, when he called us and what we should be or what we shall be. Their worthiness to be saved is not in question here. Jesus already paid that price. Amen? He's talking about their way of life, their day in and day out Christian life that everyone sees on a daily basis. Is it a worthy of Christ lifestyle? Paul prays for their worthiness. How about us? When was the last time we prayed for God to make us worthy of his calling? D.A. Carson, in his book called Praying with Paul, he says this, 
When was the last time you prayed this sort of prayer for your family, for your church, for your children? Do we not spend far more energy praying that our children will pass their exams or get a good job or be happy or not stray too far than we do praying that they may live lives worthy of what it means to be a Christian? Studying this passage was really tough on my heart. So please don't think that when I say this up here that I consider myself to have arrived. No, far from it. There are many, many times in my life that I thought it would be so much easier if God would be in the business of just sending me certified mail. That the answers to my prayers could be right there and I'd sign off on them. Wouldn't that be easier? But no, he's in the business of teaching us faith and dependence on him for our every need. Those answers to prayer that we have sought in tears. He's a prayer-answering God, my brothers and sisters. And I hope, I hope you have examples in your life that you can look back on and see, and see his hand at work. In just a few weeks... I'll reach a milestone. I'll be married to the same woman for 45 years. That's an answer to prayer. (laughs) I've seen God work in my life. I've seen him miraculously heal snake bites. People that should have died got up and walk away. I've witnessed him release people from demonic oppression. And I'm here today because he protected me from numerous dangers in my life. The power of prayer is real and God is active in it, is he not? Amen. Next, Paul prays for the power of God to be made manifest in two ways. One, in the fulfillment of their resolve for goodness. And two, in every work of faith. These deeds done with the certainty of faith. Now, when I first started looking at this part of the passage, I thought it was simply just a desire or a, um, a resolving of the will for good things to happen. And then a second prayer would come along for works of faith. But the more I studied it, the more I realized that, no, it's way, it's way more than that. It's action. The Greek seems to suggest that a way to interpret it would be a completion of a well-pleasing goodness. So we can see there's action buried in here. And it's parallel to that second part of the verse that says every work of faith. So this completion or this accomplishment of goodness, it's a work prompted by faith. There are two ways of saying the same thing. So how are these works of faith accomplished? Well, by the power of God. Paul is praying that God's power that was strong enough to save them is also strong enough to empower them to desire to accomplish good works of faith. Nothing can be accomplished or even desired without God's power working through our faith. There are two sides of the same coin. Power is God's and faith is ours and they work together. In these verses about the Thessalonians' faith-prompted works by God's power are in these two parallel pieces. 
And what we're talking about here is the Thessalonians' resolve for goodness. And that resolve is also by God's power. This is important in how we see the application of that prayer even in our own lives. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both of those things. It is God himself that works in us, both in our wills, refining our desires to match his and in our work to accomplish his plans, the very good works that he planned for us before the foundation of the world. That's from Ephesians 2.10. But here's the astonishing part. If that's their resolve, then it's their works of faith. What does that mean? That means their lives have changed. They're not the same anymore. The power of God has enabled them to change and desire good things to be done by faith in that same power. If that's true, then it also means, as we apply it to ourselves, that same resolve lives in us, does it not? Those same works of faith can come through us. Why? Because God has changed us. By the power of his Holy Spirit. He's empowered us to be obedient, bright, bold witnesses for him in this world. It means that we have been so transformed by what Jesus has done. The good news of his payment for our sin. And his powerful work in our lives to make us more like Christ. That the very desires of our hearts have been changed to reflect the desires of God. Our new desires should be prompting us. Should they not prompting us toward self-evaluation and maybe even new personal challenges, stretching us beyond our comfort zones so we can begin to ask new questions of ourselves. Questions like, who can I share the gospel with today? Is that something you think in your mind every day? Or how can I help the widow lady that lives down the street whose lawn is overgrown and whose siding needs to be washed? Maybe even how can I support that person sitting in the pew here in church who feels called to pastoral ministry? Or some of those young people that want to be involved in missions, do we support them? Or here's something really radical. Maybe God is serving, is calling you to serve in some new stretching capacity. It's a matter of prayer, brothers and sisters, a prayer for God's power to work mightily, empowering us to actually accomplish those desires for goodness and works prompted by faith. The Thessalonian church is a product of that kind of fasting and prayer. In Acts 13:1, we see the leaders of the church in Antioch fasting and praying. If you remember anything about the church in Antioch, you might remember that it's a booming multicultural church that was born out of people sharing the good news of Jesus. They shared it with Jews. They shared it with Greeks. They shared it with all different people from different cultures. And now they were asking the Lord to show them what are the next steps in building your kingdom And what did God do? 
Do you remember? He answered. Not by a certified letter. He told them to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work of missions that he would call them to. They were sent by the Holy Spirit and new churches of various cultures were born as a result. Churches like Thessalonica that we're studying today comes out of that good prompting of works done in faith. We're going to gather together on October 20th as a culmination of our global outreach conference and we're going to gather for prayer at the next Fresh Encounter prayer meeting. And that night we'll be focused on praying for the unreached and asking God, what should we be doing next for the expansion of the kingdom of God? What does God want to do through Cedarcrest for the glory of his name in the next decade? We need to be asking God for that, just like the leaders and the elders at the church of Antioch. And get ready, he may answer that prayer. Paul prayed for their worthiness. He prayed for their fulfillment and for the works of good faith. And we saw, so we saw what he prayed for and how he always prayed for them with deep eternal values in mind, accomplished in them only by the abiding power of God. And now Paul tells them ultimately why he prays for them. <clears throat> Verse 12 says, So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul prays for them. He prays for two main things in verse 12 here. That the name of Jesus may be glorified in them and that they may be glorified in Jesus. First, that the name of Jesus may be glorified in them. This part of the verse is one we usually hear and we identify with. Paul prayed that the name of Jesus would be glorified in the Thessalonians. Paul was truly filled with the concern that they live lives worthy of being called a Christian. He prayed that God would fulfill their good faith-prompted desires to see the wonderful things that they've accomplished as good and praiseworthy. But to what end? So that people can say those Christians... They're good people. They do good things. Well, we see a lot of that going on in the world today, don't we? We see groups of people that do good things just because they're good. And they feel pretty good about those good deeds. And they actually receive praise from people around them. But oh, there's only one that deserves praise. There's an account in Acts 12. Verses 21 and 23. I think it's relevant here. It's about Herod. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. And people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms. And breathed his last. Pretty scary stuff. You might remember the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 4. 
God makes it very plain to him that all the praise and the glory belongs to God alone. After the first dream about a statue, Nebuchadnezzar then goes and builds a statue of himself, doesn't he? And he wants people to bow down and worship him. Then in the second dream in Daniel 4, he talks about this great kingdom. And he's all full of pride. This is the kingdom that King Nebuchadnezzar has built. And he refused to praise God for it. Do you remember what happened to him? Right? God made him like a beast of the field. And he ate grass on his hands and knees until he praised God for all of it. Until he said that God is the worthy one. And then he was restored. Our God is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. So no matter what good resolve we have or what deeds of faith we've accomplished, Jesus is the one who should receive all the praise for the fruitfulness of his people. Amen? Our highest goal, our loftiest aspiration would be that Jesus Christ be praised. Hallelujah. I don't want to say that our works of faith have no value. Of course they do. God himself gives us that power to do that. But the ultimate valued end must be the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Do we really, do we really want all the glory for Jesus? I don't know. Don't we somewhere deep within our own prideful selves want to receive some of that glory? When we serve in any ministry, whether it's preaching up here or making coffee on a Sunday morning, teaching in Discipleship Institute, or the terrifying work of working in the ministry of uh, the nursery, (laughs) Jesus is the one who receives the glory for whatever is accomplished. You know, this is really dangerous ground to be up here. I remember visiting other churches as the missionary, and people immediately put you up on a pedestal. Oh, what in the world? Why do people think the missionary is more righteous than the normal person in the pew? Or the preacher that stands up here? That's a terrifying place, brothers and sisters. Don't put any one of us up on a pedestal because it's a long way to fall and the damage is so intense. But if we're honest with ourselves, we all have this small, deeply buried desire to receive some of that glory whether we serve as an usher, a youth leader, or any one of a hundred ways to do deeds of good faith. Take your pick. We're all pulled by that same old sin of Adam and Eve. We all want to be at the center to be like God. Paul knows this about us. He knew it about the Thessalonian believers. And he asks not that we gain notoriety or fame or that even our greatest Christian deeds be highlighted. No, but that the name of Jesus Christ is lifted up and praised and glorified. The second part of that phrase, that they may be glorified in him. He's praying the Thessalonians would be glorified in Jesus Christ. That's so much harder for me to understand. How can I possibly be glorified in Jesus? I know that in and of myself, I have no glory. On top of that, I have nothing I could possibly add to the one who has all the glory already. 
What measly tidbit of glory could I hold before such an awesome, glorious God? Absolutely nothing. But yet Paul still prays for it. Earlier we looked at Romans 8.30 where it said, Those whom he predestined he also called. And those he called he also justified. And those he justified he also glorified. So in some way we're going to be glorified. We will one day be perfect. We'll have resurrection bodies like Jesus. I'm looking forward to that. I don't know about you. We're going to be residents of the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to live in this glorious state. I have a hard time picturing that in my mind. Can you imagine sinlessness? Never a sinful thought to taint or stain us. Never a sinful act that would disparage our Savior. It's incomprehensible compared to everything we know about ourselves and the world around us. Talk about culture shock. How different is that from who we really are today? I'm sure the Thessalonians felt the same way, but the Holy Spirit of God is working. He worked on them and he's working on us. One room at a time, he's cleaning up the house. That's called progressive sanctification. Making us more like Jesus, a little tiny piece at a time. Praise God. Earlier we talked about living a life worthy of our calling, and I quoted from John Stott. Well, the last part of that really makes a whole lot more sense here. He says, he's also been working in us in order to narrow the gap between what we were when he called us and what we should be or what we shall be in that day when he comes again. Are you looking forward to that? I am. Whoa, that lines up with 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I can't help but think of the analogy Pastor Boone used last week. It's just been rolling around in my mind all week. He said, in some ways, we're like a mirror reflecting the image of God, right? But in other ways, we're like the filament of a light bulb. And the Holy Spirit is that electrical juice running through that filament. And what happens? It glows. And there's glory that comes out of us. Unbelievable. That glory emanates from us, but it takes nothing away from God's glory. No, it's quite the opposite. The glory is the evidence of His power, and it glorifies Him all the more. Because he's the source of it all. Amen? So we talked about what Paul prays for the Thessalonians. How he prays for them and ultimately why he prays for them. So that the name of Jesus may be glorified in them. And that they may be glorified in him. So you can take this whole thing and glean it down to some short statement. Maybe he's just asking the Thessalonians to try harder. You think? I don't know. Is that what he's asking us? Is that what we should take away from this passage? I don't think so. If we follow the very last portion of these two verses about Paul's prayer, what does it say? According to the grace of our God 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. None of these things can happen apart from the grace of God. We talked about our calling, our salvation. Only by God's grace does that happen. We talked about good desires and works of faith that can only be done because of God's grace. We talked about the power of God that causes us to actually change and become more like Christ. Only by his grace. Paul's prayer for all this is founded in the knowledge that Jesus is coming again. It forms the very patterns of his thinking and it obviously affects how he prays for the Thessalonians. It's in light of the end, brothers and sisters. He knows the final picture and it informs his life and his prayers in the present moment. One of the common rules that a missionary always hears is that when you start any kind of ministry, you start with the end in mind. Is that the way we think? I want to share a quick story with you to illustrate the point. In 1952, a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick stepped off the beach at Catalina Island and into the water, determined to swim to the mainland shore in California. She was already an experienced long-distance swimmer. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly on the day she set out. She could scarcely see the boats that would accompany her. For 15 hours, she swam. She begged to be taken out, but her trainer urged persistence, telling her again and again that she could make it, that the shore was not far away. Physically and emotionally exhausted, she finally just stopped swimming. And she was pulled out. The boats made for the shore. And she discovered it was a mere half mile away. The next day, she gave a news conference. What she said, in effect, was this. I do not want to make excuses for myself. I am the one who has to be pulled out. But I think that if I could have seen the shore... I would have made it. Two months later, she proved her point. On a bright and clear day, she plunged back into the sea and she swam the distance. If we could see the shore, would that change the way we live and the way we pray? I believe it would. It's a mere half mile away, brothers and sisters. Keep it in mind. Let's live and pray with the end in mind. Jesus is coming again. Hallelujah. Amen.